Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. As the country continues to confront the coronavirus pandemic, school districts' budgets are taking some serious hits. Now more than ever, it's critical to take a look at how schools are using their funding and to think through ways they can spend their dollars more efficiently. That's the topic of a new volume, Getting the Most Bang for the Education Buck, which is co-edited by the Fordham Institute's Brandon Wright and AEI's own Rick Hess. So on this episode of The Report Card, I'm gonna talk with one of the contributors to that volume, Brian Hassel, about school staffing, how it's changed over the past few decades, and how schools and states could modernize it to help better serve both teachers and students. Brian is the co-president of Public Impact, where he consults widely with states, districts, nonprofits, and foundations on an array of education issues, including school finance, educator talent, charter schools, and school turnarounds. Brian, thanks for coming on the report card. Thanks for having me, Nat. So first off, if we're going to talk about rethinking school staffing, we probably should start by just thinking a little bit about what we mean by school staffing. I mean, what are the roles that we should be thinking about? Because that could most obviously include teachers, but there's a bunch of other folks that work at schools. That's right. It's the whole range of school staff. Together, 80% of school spending goes to salaries and benefits of staff. Teachers are a big part of it for sure, but also school administrators, teachers' aides, uh, the district office staff, uh, bus drivers, cafeteria workers, and all the services that go around classrooms. Teachers and principals, though, are the most important to focus on here because we know from research that they are the number one and number two in-school factors that drive student learning growth. So how we spend money on teachers and principals, especially teachers, really makes a huge difference whenever we're talking about bang for the buck. Sure. And when you're talking about four and five education dollars going to salaries, and you're talking about those frontline workers, it, it makes sense that you know the people who are most directly in charge of delivering instruction and organizing it get a lot of our attention. Before we get into it, let's sort of zoom out a little bit. In your chapter for the Bang for Education Buck volume, you wrote about how staffing has changed over the past several decades. Now, there's a, a lot that can be said here, I'm sure. But, you know, big picture, give us a thumbnail of how today's school staffing compares to the staffs that we might have seen maybe in the 60s or 70s. Now, the big picture here is uh, even starting a little broader than that, looking at just how spending has changed. So my co-author on this, Emily Askew-Hassel, realized a few years ago, several years ago, that though teacher pay hasn't gone up that much, school spending has gone up a ton. So specifically, since 1970, real per pupil spending has gone up 145%. And during that time, though, real teacher pay only went up by 7.5%. Teacher work hours also went up. And so the hourly pay for teachers went down during this period of time since 1970. So there's this big picture trend where if teacher pay had increased in proportion to K-12 spending, teachers today would be earning nearly $140,000 on average, when in fact they earn less than half of that. So there's been this big increase in spending teachers, though, not having their pay go up proportionally to that. And a big part of the reason for that is the staffing changes that have happened in schools. 
what what did all this extra money go towards? Well, it went towards school physical plant, it, but a lot of it went towards people, administrators, other school support personnel, instructional aides, instructional supervisors and facilitators of various kinds, central office administrators. And so the proportion of the staff who are teachers has gone down a lot during this period of time. So where did the huge appetite for all this staff come from? I mean, these are kinds of staff that in uh, you know the 60s or 70s or 80s, we might not have seen too much of. Uh, that's a That's a huge appetite if you're going to eat up a 47% increase in spending or a good good part of that. Was it classroom teachers feeling overburdened and calling for reinforcements or what? It's such an interesting story. Uh, And it was benevolently intended. You know, what what you've got is an industry where other professions were changing rapidly and making themselves really attractive to talent. And we can come back and talk a little bit more about that. How did education respond to that? Well, they responded by adding a lot of staff to schools to try and support classroom teachers who were working largely alone in their own classrooms without a lot of support. They added staff to try and provide them with coaching, to try and provide them with smaller classes in some cases, but they left the structure of the profession in place. So it was a well-intended effort to help teachers, but it ended up not working very well for reasons we can talk about. One thing that comes to mind immediately over this sort of time scale in terms of the growth of staff in schools is special education, right? Which we're talking sort of, um, you know, the the 70s or so, there was a much, much smaller need because IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, hadn't been passed and transformed a lot of schools. How big a role has uh, special ed staffing played in this growth of staffing numbers all over? It's played a significant role. You know, there's been a realization in the 70s that students with special needs needed a lot more individualized support. There's also been a growing population of students who are English language learners and a realization they need something different and, and better. And so to be sure, some of the staffing change was a response to the desire to have a more equitable education system. And that's super well-intentioned. But beyond that, we, we increased more than you would justify just based on those numbers alone. If you look at the numbers of increase in special ed spending and ELL spending and other kind of special populations, it doesn't account for the massive shift in staffing that we see overall. You mentioned that some other industries have been changing over the same sort of historical period in ways where they're trying to make sure that they bring in top talent, right? You know, we got to really improve our capital because our frontline workers, you know, they make our money or they achieve our mission, whatever the case may be. But in addition to the change of these numbers in teachers and staff in schools, in your chapter, you talk about some of the qualitative shifts in the the the, the teaching workforce. For instance, uh, you've got a note in here that between 1963 and 2000, the proportion of teachers that came from top-tier colleges dropped from 5%, a height of 5%, down to 1%. And the proportion of teachers from bottom-tier colleges during that time frame grew from 16% to 36%. That's, that's pretty jaw-dropping. What's going on there? A lot of it has to do with what other professions were doing, as you mentioned. So you've got law, medicine, accounting, consulting, other professions like this really changing the way they compete for talent. And I'd bullet out a few points there. One, they let pay get to the highest level pretty early in 
professional's career. So a doctor or lawyer can expect their pay to reach the peak level around age 40 and then enjoy the benefits of that for the rest of their career. For teachers, you got to get to about 55 before you reach peak earnings. So you're almost near the end of your career when you get to that point. So that's one big difference. Another is they organized professionals into teams so they didn't have everybody working alone trying to figure it out on their own. And they let excellent practitioners within the profession lead those small teams and earn more for doing so while continuing to practice their craft. You know, Nat, in law, even managing partners in law firms, the ones that take on the most administrative responsibility, still practice law a third of the time. And yet they have this advancement, they're earning more, and they're able to help everybody else in the law firm be better. Teaching didn't do that. We left teachers working largely alone. We left them without the chance to advance unless they want to leave teaching altogether and become an administrator or go work for AEI's education policy shop or something like that. So got me, got me. <laughs> so the professions other than education really made a play for talent. And you could see the numbers that you cited as uh, evidence that teaching didn't keep up. Now, to be sure, lots of great talent still enters teaching. And in fact, if you took all the excellent teachers across the country and extended their reach to serve all students, we'd have enough great teachers to meet the needs of every kid. But when they're all working alone in their own classrooms, we don't get that kind of benefit. Yeah. So you talk about this in, in two sort of images. One is the egg crate classroom organizational structure, right? Like where you, you sit in your little egg cup or whatever you call that in an egg crate. And then you have the step and lane of the pay scales, which are sort of locked and rigid. So if I can just repeat back what I've heard, where, whereas law firms have flexibility in who does what and how they move throughout their career, and also flexibility in the payment structure, you might have opportunities for advancement that might not be in the typical teaching workforce, again, because most of the positions look pretty similar, not differentiated. And for the most part, uh, we can't get pay to our highest performers. Um, Am I catching that correctly? That's right. Most teaching roles are very similar to each other across the career. And there's not the chance to take on a new role, for the most part, while continuing to teach. You can leave. You can become a principal. You can become an assistant principal. But if you want to keep teaching kids, you have to pretty much remain a teacher. And that's going to look the same as it did when you just started your career five years ago, 10 years ago. Right. So we've talked about two problems here, and it's really important, I think, to layer them on top of each other. We have structural problems or challenges. And of course, there's some some good arguments behind these things, but at least as how they affect teacher pay and the, the way we roll out that staffing model, they can constrain differentiation across teachers. But I need to remind us and our listeners Uh, Hey, earlier we were talking about the real pay of teachers going up 7% over half a century. The two of those together seem like a a pretty tough stranglehold on improving our workforce. That's so true. I mean, in 1969, about half the money went to teacher pay. By 2015-16, only 30.9% of the money went to teacher pay. So it went from a little over half to less than a third of the money going into teachers' pockets during that time. During a time when we haven't talked about this, but teaching has become more and more complex and challenging. We talked about the growth and diversity of the student population. There's also the increased 
insistence, rightful insistence as a nation that all kids reach high standards. Uh, we all want that. And that's all falling to teachers at a time when their share of the education pie has been going down. And the profession hasn't changed that much to give them the kind of help and support they could use to be really effective. So let's dive into the effects here and, and, and let me question some of these, uh, the general direction we're going here. Okay, schools have larger staffs now. Got it. Uh, and sure, they might not be getting the same number of you know, Harvard and Princeton grads teaching in their classrooms as they once did. But isn't it the fact that students are better off maybe having more teachers and more staff and getting smaller class sizes? The class size part of this is, is complicated. I mean, one, one thing to point out is that a lot of times these staffing increases didn't result in lower class sizes. So these new staff people that came in were on the side. They were an interventionist or they were a data coach or they were some kind of instructional supervisor or facilitator. And so class sizes haven't changed that dramatically during this time period. Now, some states and districts have made a big push to, to decrease class size. You can see why. It's very popular with teachers. It's very popular with parents who think their kids will get more attention. But that's been a double-edged sword, too, because even if there may be some benefits to having a smaller class, the impact of reducing class sizes in a big way is you got to get a lot more teachers. So you have to hire more uh, into the school in order to fill the more classrooms you have that are smaller. And that means you know, going deeper into the talent pool. It means stretching farther to, to reach the number of teachers you need to bring into the system. And that has a countervailing impact relative to student performance to whatever benefit you might get from lowering the class size in the first place. So you know, these two changes, adding all this staff around the edges, lowering class sizes, again, very well-intended moves, but ultimately you know, didn't result in what we really need, which is more kids having access to great teaching. Right. And when we're talking about this in terms of bang for the buck, that's the lack of the bang for, for the buck. But you mentioned in the book that the ranks of instructional coordinators have grown more than tenfold since the late 60s. So that's a pretty big, big increase. But, you know, when I think about this sort of like the army, right, you have your frontline fighters and then you have the support staff. And without this, the, the folks in support, that take care of all the logistics, well, your, your frontline folks aren't doing very well. So what has been the effect of these instructional coordinators, for instance, on your typical classroom teacher, at least from their instructional productivity perspective? There's been some research on this question. What is the effect of this kind of coaching on, on teacher effectiveness? And there is some value. There is some effect of it. You can see that in the literature. But one key thing in the, in the research on this is that when these programs work, they tend to be small. They tend to be a few hand-picked coaches that are very carefully selected and are supporting a small, relatively small number of teachers. That kind of coaching can be made to work with the intensive support. When you look at the research on bigger and bigger coaching programs where, say, a large district or a whole state is deploying coaches, the effects drop off pretty dramatically. And you see that in the, in the literature reviews that have been done on this topic. And why is that? Well, if you look at the numbers here, Nat, there's about one instructional coordinator or whatever kind of term you want to put on it for every 36 teachers in, in the country. 
And let's say those are concentrated in half the schools. Still, that's about one for every 18 teachers. And we know from management research over many decades that that's just a huge number of people to be supporting as a leader. In most complex professions, research says you see about five or six people supported by a manager. That's the kind of span that we think is a good one for a complex job. 18 is just too much for a typical coach to give the kind of intensive help that teachers need to be successful. So that's what really leads us to recommend small teams in that five or six range, led by someone who has proven high growth in their own classroom and who continues to teach the kids that are served by that team. So they're not cut off from that by the fact that they have so many teachers to support. I, I hear what you're saying, and, and I want to ask you about that next. But first, let me just ask, it seems like part of the explanation is, well, maybe we don't have enough instructional coordinators, right? Maybe we need more. What effect does bringing on more instructional coordinators have on your, your ability to leverage salary dollars across the school system? If all we did was increase the number, I don't think we'd have any reason to think that would be successful. And to your point, it would be a budget killer. And so instead, we need to really think differently about this. We need more support for teachers, for sure. But we need the, that support to come out of the existing budgets. Uh, we need school teams to sit down with their budgets and think about how could we reallocate what we've got in order to support not external people coaching our teachers, but our best teachers leading small teams within our existing budgets and taking responsibility for getting the job done for students. Right. So this, this sort of connects back to what we were talking about before. You've got a, a problem with salaries and funding on, on the one hand, and you also have a structural problem, the egg crate and the step in lane and those confines that uh, you know, can keep teachers in roles or they have to, you know, bust loose and, and, and go into administration or some completely different role. And you talk about a solution, a staffing model that you call opportunity culture. Walk me through that from a perspective of a, of a new teacher, right? I'm a new teacher at a school. We're following the opportunity culture model. How does my experience differ from a teacher in a school with a more or less traditional staffing? Model? It's almost ludicrous what we mostly do with new teachers. And that is they get a full classroom where they're fully responsible as if they had the same experience and expertise as someone that's been at it for a while and shown and learned the ropes. That's our typical experience of a new teacher. So if you interview new teachers, you'll hear them talk about drowning or, or not being able to keep up with the massive demands that they have. So in these opportunity culture structures, there's a multi-classroom leader leading a small team of teachers and a new teacher joins that team. So instead of working by themselves with 25 kids, 30 kids, they're part of a team that meets regularly to plan what they're going to do during the week and in instruction. And they have that multi-classroom leader available to come in and co-teach with them, to show them how to do a lesson, to watch them teach and give them feedback right in the moment. Uh, to give them another task to work on next time so they can get better as a teacher, and to really organize the whole team to professionally develop over time. They also have that multi-classroom leader able to work with their kids directly, pulling a small group or even teaching the whole class for some time. So they get the benefit of that expertise. They're not just working by themselves. And so it's really night and day compared to being thrown off the deep end, which we do with most new teachers. 
Brian, let me let me push back on that a little bit because you know when I was in the classroom, we had some of these that are at least sort of like this. I had a department chair, I had a grade level chair. You know, these were sort of like you know I don't know the the head teacher in, in some sense. How is the opportunity culture model clearly distinct from those roles that might be more prevalent in, uh, across most schools? So a department chair or grade level chair. First of all, they might not earn anything for taking on that new role, or they might earn a small kind of pat on the back supplement. These multi-classroom leaders, by contrast, are earning large supplements, 20% above the salary schedule on average for taking on a bigger responsibility. And then number two, responsibility is also a lot larger. So they're responsible for the student learning across a whole team of teachers. So they're not just available to help or available to show up for a meeting once a week, but rather it's their job to help their whole team get the job done for the students. They're accountable for those results. So it's a bigger responsibility. Finally, these teachers have a lot more time to play the role that they're set to play as a multi-classroom leader. A department chair or a grade level chair is pretty much going to have a full teaching load. They're not going to have a whole lot of time to spend with their peers. Multi-classroom leader might have as much as 40 or 60 or 70% of their time free to go do these other roles with teachers because the school team has designed the schedule to make that possible. So there's more funds to pay them. There's more responsibility and accountability, and there's more time for the job. But this would also be different from their instructional coordinator, your instructional coach position, because they'd be embedded with students. They'd be teaching, if, if I'm hearing this correctly, and rather than having them play a totally different position, like you are a full-time coach with 20 or 36 teachers or however many it is, spread very thin, they're in a small group and um, play a leadership role on the day-to-day learning where all those teachers are engaged in the learning for the same set of students in the school. That's right. These multi-classroom leaders are much closer to the action and therefore more able to have an impact on students and their fellow teachers. But also they don't lose touch with the craft. They're in there with students, with teachers every day doing the work. And that kind of connection to the craft keeps them on their toes and doing what's needed for the students and teachers. So Brian, what would you expect teachers to think of this. A lot of teachers, it's rumored like the, you know, I'm going to shut my door and do what I want. That's, you know, I, I, I should be mm-hmm. uh, autonomous and so forth. On the other hand, I, I've heard a bunch of first year teachers saying, I'll take help wherever I can get it. Generally speaking, what do we know about teachers and their likelihood to sort of embrace this uh, opportunity culture model that you're talking about? Well, we know from a lot of polls that many teachers would like the chance to have a role like the multi-classroom leader. That's a common polling result. I'd like the chance to advance in my career without leaving teaching. And in fact, in opportunity culture schools, we see 99% of the multi-classroom leaders responding to an anonymous survey saying they want opportunity culture to continue in their schools. So that's maybe not so surprising. They're earning substantial supplements for doing their job. It's a great new role for them. But we also see 86% of all opportunity culture staff saying they want this to continue, which indicates you know, not unanimity. There are some teachers who, to your point, perhaps would rather close their doors and work on their own. But for the most part, 
we see teachers embracing the chance to both get some support in their work in the short term, but also perhaps to have the chance to take on one of these roles in the future themselves. So you wrote your school staffing chapter for a volume called Getting the Most Bang for the Education Buck. So we do have to talk about funding. Uh, Where do the funds come from to support these higher paid multi-classroom teachers in schools that would embrace the opportunity culture framework? So in these opportunity culture schools, a design team that's made up mostly of teachers sits down with the school budget and figures out how can we reallocate our own funds to pay for these new roles. And so that takes different forms in different schools. One common approach is to swap a teaching position for an advanced paraprofessional who can support small group and individual tutoring while the teachers collaborate and and do more to serve students. Paraprofessional roles pay less, that frees savings that then can be used to support higher pay for multi-classroom leaders. And even for team teachers who can also earn more in these schools where a smaller number of teachers then is reaching more students. So that's one big approach. These design teams also look at their budgets and find perhaps Title I funding or other discretionary dollars that may be being used for X, Y, and Z. And they say, let's use it for these multi-classroom leaders because they are going to provide much more direct help for our teachers than we're getting from these other services we may be purchasing. So in all cases, though, they're reallocating existing school budgets, and the value of that is they can keep doing it. It's not a line item coming from a grant, a special fund that's been created by the superintendent, but instead it's in the school budgets, and as long as it's valuable to the schools, they can keep paying the MCLs more and doing the work. Sure. And then, of course, since we've already talked, there's a lot of instructional coaches and instructional coordinators. And I'm guessing that if we have an instructional coach for every 36 teachers, that salary could also be, uh, you know, if if you eliminate that position, all of a sudden you've got an opportunity for the uh, multi-classroom teachers to work with the kind of salary bump we're talking about. How much pushback does this idea get from whatever association represents the instructional coordinators of the world. It's quite common for a school to decide if we have these multi-classroom leaders, we don't need a separate instructional coach in addition to that. That's pretty normal. And so, and sometimes those instructional coaches then end up taking these multi-classroom leader jobs and actually sometimes earning more than they were earning as a instructional coach. Now that said, are there places where there, this creates some conflict and, and complication? Sure. Uh, places that have a long-standing cadre of instructional coaches, this is a new model that's always going to create politics and complications. And so it's really important for leaders of a school district to step back and, and think and ask their teachers, what's going to be best to provide the kind of backing that our teachers need to become better teachers over time and have their career opportunities and make a choice? But yes, it can be controversial sometimes. Let's push on that a little bit. I'm a superintendent. I'm I'm all in. Opportunity culture is my model. Mm-hmm. I'm going to move forward. What do I need to do to implement it? Mm-hmm. And how big of a challenge am I up against? Implementing opportunity culture does take some time and effort. So it's a two or three year transition period where it, schools are planning and then implementing a design that they phase in. Because it's not like you just want to flip the switch and make everything different tomorrow. So typically the schools will say, let's make a three-year plan to put this into action. We'll start in certain grade levels. We'll start in certain subjects. 
and move it over time. So there is an implementation process that takes time and energy for sure. You're, I think you're also asking though about the political challenge. And certainly when we started out on this work, we thought there might be huge political challenges to this just because anytime you're changing things, you potentially create that. Uh, like I said, though, we've found that because teachers largely embrace these changes, we haven't seen the kind of political backlash that you see with a lot of reforms in most places. Superintendents usually find they're actually doing something now that teachers want, which is not the case with a lot of reforms they may have tried in the past. So it becomes more of a technical challenge to implement. You've got to do things like figure out how much we can afford to pay for these supplements. How can we free the time to make it possible uh, for the roles to play out in the schools? How are we going to change the way we evaluate teachers so that we can capture the contributions they're making? How are we going to find the people and select them for these roles? So there's not, I don't want to take away from the fact there's a lot of challenges that you have to overcome. Political challenges, though, we haven't found to be the big one. How many schools are using the opportunity culture model now? I mean, what's the, the spread on this model? It's now almost 500 schools that have joined the initiative in one way or another. And that's been growing at about 50% a year. So it's in 10 states and about 40 districts. So still early days, but something that we think can reach a lot of places and help a lot of teachers and students. And to some degree, if this model is implemented, it sounds like you're ultimately going to reduce the staff positions overall at these schools, right? I mean, at some point, you're going you're gonna to shed some staff in part because you're, you're paying some folks more with existing resources. So that's, that's sort of how it works when we reorient resources. So sure, there's potential higher pay for teachers, but is there not pushback or, you know, unpopularity with some folks when overall the number of staff positions may be going down? That can certainly be a concern. Even if overall staff positions don't go down because these teaching positions are being replaced by a paraprofessional, the number of teaching positions may go down in some schools. And so could that raise concerns? Yes. Ultimately, we'd like to think of unions thinking about this, like how can we support our members as well as possible? If teacher pay as a share of education spending is going back up towards what it used to be, half the money, like I said, back in 1969-70. If teachers associations uh, set their dues in a way that captured that, they should benefit too. Because ultimately, this is about teachers having had their pockets picked for 50 years as spending went elsewhere. Let's put that back in teachers' pockets where it belongs, where they can have the impact that they want. So, Brian, you're not allowed to have a conversation these days without bringing up COVID. So I'm going to go ahead and do it. Um, but it seems to me that COVID could play either a positive or negative role in deploying the opportunity culture mm -hmm. model. It's certainly shaking things up, helping uh, us or forcing us and school leaders to sort of rethink how we deploy resources. Uh, I'm curious, has there been an increased interest in the model or do you think districts and administrators might be more open or more hesitant to rock the status quo in the given state of things during the pandemic? Overall, we've seen an increase in interest. Uh, we find that in this time when teachers are now having this whole new set of challenges of teaching from home or teaching a hybrid group of students who are at home or remote, that they need more help than they ever have. And uh, they, and they're also 
districts are much more worried about learning loss than they even were before and the equity effects of this pandemic on kids. And so they're really interested in a way to provide better teaching and better support for teachers. So we've seen actually an uptick in the interest in this. Now, it creates new challenges for sure. A lot of the things that these teachers used to be able to do by walking down the hall and helping each other on their teams, now they have to figure out how to do remotely, just like all of us are figuring out how to do everything remotely. But we've been so impressed with how teacher leaders have been able to ramp up their support for other teachers just in this in this new mode by using Zoom instead of by walking down the hall and adapt to the environment. Now, we know there's challenges ahead. District budgets are going to be even more strained than they have been, and priorities will have to be assessed. And so nobody knows what the future holds. But in the short term, at least, we see more districts saying, yes, let's try something different here. We know our teachers need something different. We know our students need something different. Brian, last question here. On the last podcast, we talked to Chad Alderman about teacher pensions. And he, he said, well, yeah, we're going to have to spend a lot of money. We already owe a lot of money. But most of the talk was about structure. It was about organization. It was less about how much money we spend and more about the structures through which we deploy resources. And you're talking about the same set of challenges. Let's, let's rethink. Let's reorganize. Let's optimize to get the most bang for our buck. This is a, you know, a coherent model that's being laid out and seeing some success. What are the headwinds? The biggest headwind is there, there are so many other competing priorities and ideas about how to make schools better. And so when, you're, when you talk to a superintendent or a state leader, there's a lot going on in their mind. There are a lot of ideas coming at them. And so the way I would encourage leaders to think about this is whatever it is that you're going to try to do, whether it's a new curriculum, whether it's a new instructional approach, whether it's a new social emotional learning regime, whatever that is, what's the best, most likely way you're going to be able to implement that effectively? And what we'd say is if teachers are organized into teams with a great teacher as the leader of that team, Whatever else it is that you think is going to get the job done for your students, you can get done more effectively, more quickly by having that kind of structure in place. So rather than think of it as a competing idea that's a separate way to improve schools, think about it as a way to get the things done that you need to get done for your students and teachers. Well, thanks for coming on to talk about the Opportunity Culture Model, and uh, folks can find the the chapter in the book, Getting the Most Bang for the Education Buck. I, I do think it's interesting pushing the idea of rather than let's layer on another solution to, you know, we're going to have to take some things apart to put this back together where it runs more efficiently. And that seems like a lot of trouble and headache, but like it could just pay off. We think it will. And, you know, there's research that says when teachers join these teams, their kids learn more. And that's really ultimately what we're focused on here. So hopefully it's helpful for teachers, but also pays off for students in having better access to great teaching. Well, Brian, thanks for coming on the report card to talk to us about it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guest, Brian Hassel. Once again, the book is Getting the Most Bang for the Education Buck. You can pick up a copy from Teachers College Press, Amazon, or wherever you get your books. Thanks, as always, to the producers that made this episode possible. That's Matt Rice and Tyler Hoover. 
Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And when you're there, take a minute and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. As always, send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at AEI.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus. Thank you.